Yeah, really glad to be here with you guys tonight. We are going to go through a chunk of Romans 9 once more, okay, uh, which Terrell set up really well for you guys last time. Um, he covered verses 1 through 24, and I think he did a really great job of kind of laying the groundwork, talking historically about this is discussing Jews and Gentiles and God's purposes throughout history and what's going on with all the crazy dynamics there uh, and how to understand God as the great author and then these characters, how they're playing into the story. And so he did a really good job with that. Um, but I'm going to speak personally. Um, this is a text that I've struggled with personally, just on a relational level with God. <clears throat> and it's also a text that I've struggled theologically with. Um, I, I banged my head against it in seminary, and uh, you know, I leaned one way at that point, and then coming back to the text and wrestling with it and trying to submit myself to it, I find myself leaning in another way. And then talking with people, I find myself, frankly, just confused at some points, okay? Um, this is a hard text. And so what I want to do tonight is just kind of step back, and I want to try to show you the big picture here. Um, this isn't exhaustive, but what I want you to get a picture of is the character of God, okay? Because there's some technical theological things that are being trotted out here, but really behind all of those questions is, is God trustworthy, okay? And so we're going we're gonna to do a kind of a flyover review of some of the stuff that Terrell covered last, last week, and I'm not going to go verse by verse. I'm just going to kind of point out here and here, look, see the character of God here, look, see the character of God here. And then what I really want to land the plane on is trusting the Lord. Because I'll be honest, as I look at my life, um, whenever things are really confusing, or whenever things are going wrong, I struggle to trust in God's character. Right? Whenever things feel chaotic, whenever feel, things feel like they're falling apart, I, like everything I know about the Lord starts to come into question. Is he really good? Is he really faithful? Is he really just? Is he really merciful? And one, of the, one of the first examples of this for me was whenever I was a kid, um, I grew up a mama's boy, not ashamed to admit it, like through and through mama's boy. Uh, my mom was a wonderful woman. She uh, was warm-hearted. She's one of those people where she walks into the room and all of a sudden you just kind of, if you were carrying tension, it just kind of disperses, you know? Uh, she wasn't real loud, real rambunctious, but she just had a sweet, kind, warm-hearted nature. And she loved me really well. There's no simple way to kind of wrap up my relationship with my mom, but if I could put it some way, it would be that she was the glue that kind of held my world together, okay? She was my stability. And whenever my mom died from breast cancer, it felt like God ripped her away from me. Right? I was 10 years old, and whenever my mom died from breast cancer, it felt like God turned the heat lamp on, melted that glue, and they just kind of left the pieces, right? And I remember thinking at 10 years old, if this God that I've heard about is the kind of God that would make my mom suffer and then take her away and leave me, I don't want anything to do with him, you know? And I fast forward a little bit and I think about my time in college and I had been a believer for maybe about a year and um, <clears throat> entered into a season of particular relational discord, to put it lightly. It just felt like everything blew up at once and every effort I made just sort of threw fuel on the fire, right? And uh, I felt completely 
at a loss. And I remember praying repeatedly, Lord, please heal, please reconcile, please grant me wisdom. Oh God, I just want things to be made whole again. Show me what I'm doing wrong if I'm doing things wrong, you know? And for whatever reason, and the Lord's plan and the Lord's sovereignty, that just didn't happen for a real long time. And I remember walking through that season, even as a believer and thinking, has God abandoned me? Has he left me? Is he denying me wisdom to make it through this because of some sin I've made? Is this his vindictive punishment on me? It was hard in the midst of my mother's death and now relational discord to trust in God's character. And I fast forward even a little bit more, and this is just a couple years ago, being in seminary, and uh, we had been there for just about a year, moved to Dallas, my wife and I, and I had gone through just, you know, a year where it was just a fire hose, you know, just lay down on the ground. Um, And I remember feeling at that point, just starting to question some things. Uh, I, I was confident that God had called us there. I was confident that the Lord would have me pursue ministry. Um, but that was at a point where things were just difficult and dry, and I felt a little bit lonely. And I remember thinking, what's at the end of this? You know, the, the direction here is not quite clear, and this is taking a lot of effort, and I feel dry, and I feel alone. So what is the direction beyond here? So in the midst of death, in the midst of relational discord, in the midst of lacking direction, I struggled to trust in God's character. And my bet is that you can relate in some way to all of those things, if not those exact things, at least in a general sense, right? And so I'm comforted by some of the things that Romans 9 would teach us about God's character tonight. Okay, so let's go ahead and open up there, and we're going to take a look at what Paul has to say about the character of God. Now, remember in chapter 8, Paul talked about the people of God have been adopted. They are the sons, they are the daughters of God. And then he finishes the chapter by saying, there is absolutely nothing that can change God's love for you. There is no suffering, there is no adversity, there is absolutely no circumstance that can separate you from God's love in Jesus Christ. That's a magnificent way to close that chapter. But any Jew who had become a Christian in the first century would read that or hear Paul say that and there's a, there's a bell that goes off in his ear and say, hold on, wait, hold up. There's a significant problem here because we look around and God's son, Israel, the people of the Old Testament who God had chosen, he called out, he said, I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna bless others through you. You are gonna be my vehicle for redeeming the world. Now we look around and a majority of them have not embraced the Messiah. They have rejected Christ and they are living in disobedience under God's condemnation. So has he rejected his people? Have his promises fallen short? Okay, so take a look at verse 2 with me. This is the anguish that he feels for his people. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And then he even says, I wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is a yearning in Paul's heart. Oh God, what has happened to them? I wish I could take their condemnation from them. And so he says, 
What does it say about God's character? What does it say about God's promises? And in verse 6, he says, but, but it is not as though (coughs) the word of God has failed. (coughs) Sorry, guys, you're going to have to bear with me tonight. It is not as though the word of God, being the promises of God, it's not as though that has failed. He's not unfaithful. He has not abandoned his people. And so what he does then is he starts to develop this doctrine of election, right? In verses 6 through 13, he lays out the doctrine of election. And the whole point here is to say that God is the one who makes promises. And God is the one who decides how he applies promises. And he is faithful to those promises. And he is faithful to those whom he has applied that promise to. Okay. And so Paul illustrates this from the Old Testament examples. He says, God applied the promise to Isaac and not Ishmael. God applied the promise to Jacob and not to Esau. God remains faithful. His promises remain steadfast. He is trustworthy. He has not abandoned his people. But after discussing the doctrine of election, um, a question arises from there. If, If God decides to apply his promises to some and not to others... Is that unjust? So take a look at verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he says, absolutely not. In the strongest language possible, absolutely not. And he trots out this idea of God says, I'm the one who decides on whom I shall have mercy and compassion. And what we have to remember here is what he said in Romans before. All humanity, Jew, Gentile, regardless of your background, all of us stand on the same platform before God. And there is not one of us who says, I'm entitled to his grace. He deserves to give me the promise. He deserves to be, he should be merciful to me. Right? God is merciful and he chooses how he will show mercy. And then in 14 through 23, he, he trots out how that plays out. And there's some complex dynamics in there, Okay. And what I want to suggest to you is that there can be two ways that we can think of God's plan and God himself. Okay, so on the one side, we can think of God as an engineer, and the plan that he has is sort of like a blueprint, right? And we would go to that and we would think, all right, give me the formulas, give me the equations, let me see how all the gears fit together, and I'm going to figure this thing out, right? God is the complete controller over all things, and then humans as pieces in the puzzle, right? How does it all fit? There's another way we can view God and his plan, and I I suggest to you that this might be a little bit more helpful as we think through issues in this chunk of the text, okay? God is the almighty author of this grand narrative, this wonderful story. And this story is human history, and it's unfolding in this crazy, complex, but beautiful way because here's the main strand that there is a God who is created and he's not only created, but he is at work to redeem and to renew his creation that has fallen into sin, fallen into disobedience, fallen into corruption. And in this story, in this grand narrative, you have some key players, some key characters. And speaking from this text, we can say the characters are Israel and the Gentiles. Okay? And they play different roles. And the unique thing about this story is that these characters make genuine decisions. And these decisions even affect the trajectory of the story. And they bear responsibility 
for those decisions. But at the same time, God is the author of this great story. And there is nothing that happens in this story that is outside what he has planned. So his story encompasses those who walk with him by faith, who love him, and who serve his purposes willingly and joyously. But his plan also encompasses those who rebel against him, who exert wickedness upon the world, who oppress and hate and cause warfare, so on and so forth. His plan even encompasses them. Okay? And so as we think about the story like that, we come to realize that God is sovereign over this thing. He, and whenever I say sovereign, I, I, I'm talking about God as the king, as a good king, who has a compassionate oversight over everything that's happening. That is sovereignty. But we also see that God is merciful in this story, and I want to show you that real quick, okay? So in verses 14 through 18, if you remember, Terrell talked about this. This is where he's talking about the Exodus. He references Moses, and he talks about Pharaoh, and he's, God says, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy in reference to Israel. And then he even says, I will harden who I'm going to harden. Verse 17. Uh, and then quotes God saying, I will raise you up, Pharaoh, and I'm going to grant you power, all for the purpose of demonstrating my power and proclaiming my name in all the earth. And then later on, lower in the text, whenever it talks about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, it says that God creates these. He, he utilizes these to demonstrate his power and his wrath. But what I want you to see is that that's not the ultimate end goal. Okay, those are purposes, certainly. God is a just judge, and we as creatures just have to recognize that. And not only recognize it, but worship him for it, because if God did not punish evil, we would be lost. And there would be no gospel for us to rejoice in because we're being saved from something. What the ultimate purpose of raising up Pharaoh and other vessels of wrath throughout history has been ultimately to demonstrate his mercy. So take a look at verse 22. It says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Okay, demonstrate his power, demonstrate his wrath, yes. But then 23, in order to, this is the primary purpose, in order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared hand before for glory. So if we think about Pharaoh and Israel, this is a good example. He exalts Pharaoh, he gives him power, he allows him to oppress Israel. And then in this great act of the Exodus, he crushes Pharaoh, this proud man who is a wicked king, and he crushes his army, all that he might demonstrate that he is the deliverer of the downtrodden, the oppressed, the enslaved, the weak without hope. This is the kind of God who is writing this grand narrative. This is the merciful God, the deliverer of the poor and the needy. This is the ultimate purpose, okay? So, we see the question, what has God done with his people? Is he, has his promise failed? 
Has he rejected them? Absolutely not. God is faithful. Verse 6, it is not as though his word has failed. And then the question, well, if he applies his promises according to election, is he unjust in his choice? Verse 14, absolutely not. God is not unjust. He is free to show mercy as he chooses and to harden as he chooses. And then as we scan through that chunk down to 23, we see that God is sovereign. He's the author over this grand, huge story, but he's also merciful. And this is the primary thread that we see in the scriptural story, okay? And this is where we're going to pick up and we're going to read some verses. This is where mercy is really unfolded, okay? A little bit more. So verses 24, and we're going to go through 26. And here Paul's going to define who these vessels of mercy are, who he mentioned in verse 23, prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 24. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. So these vessels of mercy, those whom God has poured out his kindness, his compassion, his grace upon, they're drawn for both Jew and Gentile. And this is magnificent. Again, thinking back to like chapter 3 in Romans, Jew and Gentile, all humanity, these are the two big categories in Paul's mind for humanity, all stand condemned before God for their willful rebellion. Nobody has a claim to his mercy, and yet in grace he has reached out and he said, you're mine. Whenever he quotes Hosea, he's saying, look, this is always how God has been doing it. I'm not preaching something that's different from what God has revealed before. This is exactly what he's foretold by the prophets. And in Hosea, this, in the original context, what Hosea is saying, he's speaking to Israel in a time where they have become literally, according to Hosea's words, spiritual prostitutes. They had this covenant marital relationship with Yahweh, with God in the Old Testament. He had bound himself to them, as we heard this morning, through Abraham, as Kyle preached. And as their story unfolds, time and time again, they chase after other gods, and they soil themselves, sacrificing their children, giving themselves over to wickedness of every form. And it finally comes to this point where God says, you've gone too far, and punishment is coming. And at this stage, you have forsaken me, and you are not my people. You used to be my beloved, but you are not my beloved. And he's literally, like the picture of God in Hosea is him wringing his hands with tears in his eyes and saying, why won't you turn? And even in the midst of saying, look, punishment is coming, he says, but there's a day coming whenever you will be my people. And even though you have gone off and you have prostituted yourself and you have rejected me, I will take you again. And Paul says, this is not just in relation to the Jews. In light of Jesus Christ, this is in relation to Gentiles who had absolutely no claim on God. They were not the covenant people of God. And yet in Jesus, the door is flung wide and God says, come to me, my children. I love you and I'm giving you a name and you have a place at my table. 
God is merciful. And then let's read 27 through 29. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So, what Paul is discussing here, he's quoting from Isaiah, and he's linking back to the front of the chapter, the part where he's saying, oh my God, I look around and I see my nation who used to be the covenant people of God, and they're separated from him. They rejected the Messiah. They're under his condemnation. And Paul is saying, I'm so grieved over this, but I know Isaiah has spoken of what God will do. And so he returns to the word of God, and he says, Isaiah foretold that God was always going to preserve a remnant within his people. And even though it might not always be clear to our eyes, he is faithful to preserve those whom he has called my people, whom he has made promises to. He will carry those to fulfillment. And so Jew, even though the great minority have become Christians at this point, he says there's hope and God still has a plan for them. And he's even forecasting forward to later in chapter 11 whenever he's going to talk about this glorious restoration of Israel. But I'm going to leave that for Joe Dodson to preach. Um, this is a foretelling of what God is going to do some point in the future. Um, what I want you to see in verses 24 to 29 is this unfolding of God's mercy. That he preserves the people predominantly who have rebelled against him. He remains faithful to them, the remnant he preserves them. And then Gentiles, he has opened up the door and he has said, come to me all who are weak and weary and I, I will give you rest. And he says that in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we step back from this text and I've given you a very high level overview, right? Uh, but I think we can kind of get the sense that this is complex, right? Like just looking at the text itself is complex. But then I step back even further and I think of the history just kind of unfolding, everything that's happened in this world. And then to think that there is a God who is sovereign over all things and how to reconcile all of that, it's difficult. It's not only confusing, but there's some things that just feel wrong as you try to rationalize through it, right? And there's some things that are difficult to swallow, perhaps. But what I want to emphasize to you is that in the midst of all the complexities of human history, even in light of some of the difficult things that don't seem to make sense, God's character remains steadfast. God is faithful. God is just. God is sovereign. And God is merciful. So even in, the, in light of the complexities, even in the light of the difficulties, God's character remains the same. It remains steadfast. That he is faithful, that he is just, that he is sovereign, and that he is merciful. And this is true at the historical level. This is true when we're talking about people groups, Jew and Gentile. But this is true for you and me. Like on a daily, daily rhythm. And so what I wanted to do tonight was just kind of walk with you with a little bit of transparency and just give you a snapshot of how I'm trying to live in light of these truths. I'm not doing perfectly, but I figured you could take that and then kind of trot it out, apply it to yourselves, okay? Um, so to link back to my mom's death, 
Um, as I shared with you, that, that happened when I was 10 years old. <clears throat> and uh, it wasn't until I was 19, maybe even 20, that I came to know Jesus. Um, and so there was a lot of just unworked out bitterness for a while and difficulty. Um, and it really wasn't until I came to know the Lord that I experienced peace in that, that realm. And what I'm trying to say is that there's no rational reason that my mom died that would have been satisfactory to make me feel better or have peace about it. Like people could come up and be like, you know what, dude? I know that was hard, but God has a plan. Pat me on the back. Oh, thank you. Okay, yeah. Helpful. It makes everything better, actually. I'm glad I, you told me that. Um, no, that's absolutely not helpful. True, maybe, but not helpful. Uh, what was helpful was sitting down and reading the Gospels and seeing that Jesus is God in flesh, and he cares about the reject. He cares about the brokenhearted. He cares about the lowly and the oppressed. So much so that he became one himself to the point of death on a cross. That was compelling to me. That brought peace in a way that I had never sensed. And as I began to respond to that character of God myself and I began to walk with God and I began to see he really does love me. He really is not going to leave me. He really is faithful. That's when I began to sense peace. That doesn't explain away my mom's death, but I do have peace. So as you kind of think through situations in your life, there are dark things that have happened. There are dark things that are going on right now. There are dark things to come. There's no rational reason for those things that's going to be like, oh, that resolves everything. It's the character of God that will grant you peace in the midst of those dark days and nights. God is faithful. He is just. He is sovereign. And he is merciful. And he is not absent from your story. He is not absent from those dark days and nights. And so in those times, cling to his character, what he has revealed about his character. <clears throat> Next, as I, as I think about relational discord, um, to be honest, that's something that's not resolved in my life. You know, things are on an ebb and flow, to be honest. Um, and uh, I have not walked through it perfectly. You know? Um, but I'll tell you what I am trying to do. I'm trying to struggle well. Okay, sometimes that's like the best you can do. And you just try to struggle well. And so let me give you a picture of what it looks like to try to struggle well. Whenever things are really confusing and there's not like a clear answer of like, all right, I need to repent and I need to go this way. Or hey, I just need to address this with this person. These things just aren't clear, right? There's so much confusion. Here's, here's what it looks like to struggle well. I try to share openly with good brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I say, look, here's what's happened. Here's what's happening right now. Here's been my responses. What do you think? You know, give me your feedback. Am I in sin? Is there something I'm missing? Are there blind spots that I have? Like, speak to me. I want to hear that. And then even more than that, would you please just pray with me for wisdom? Because I am desperate 
I need that. So being in Christian community, being open, being honest, seeking the Lord's face. And then the other thing that I have to constantly remind myself is that the Lord allows things like this to to prune and to sanctify. And there is sin in me that still needs to be put to death. And I'll tell you what, Bible reading and praying and coming to church and serving every now and again is not going to do the job, okay? It's in there stubbornly. And so it's going to take some struggle, it's going to take some suffering, it's going to take some absolute dependence to trim that away. And so as you walk through those confusing, difficult times, struggle well in community, ask for feedback, pray, ask the Lord to grant wisdom, and see this as a pruning time. The Lord is not absent, his character remains the same. If he is faithful, if he is just, if he is sovereign, and he is merciful, This is here for a reason, and it's for your good, ultimately. And then finally, as I I think about direction, it's just interesting to kind of preach this right now because the direction question has been answered for us, you know. Um, Praise the Lord. It's been a gift from him. Um, But as I remember walking through the season where that was still foggy, I had to often kind of revert back to where this all began for me. You know, I, I frequently re- preached to myself my conversion, frankly. Um, if God took a hardened sinner and revealed his kindness and his glory to him, he's not going to then say, all right, I'm done, see you, and then walk away, right? And so I had to constantly come back and say, Lord, you took me, and you called me your son, and you've been walking with me, and even though I don't know where the path is headed, I know you're still going with me. And even though, like, I don't know what the clear next steps are, I know that you do. And so what that tells me is if I don't know the path ahead, but I know who I'm walking with, I need to be seeking his face, right? Like through scripture, through prayer, through intentional serving, through being involved in community, all of these things, we need to seek his face and trust him that he's just going to faithfully guide. And so do you... I know that so many of you are in a place where you're trying to figure out majors. You're trying to figure out, who should I date? Who should I marry? Should I get out of the relationship that I'm in currently? What kind of job am I going to have when I get done? Where am I going to live? All these questions, right? And they can get overwhelming and paralyzing. And what I want to tell you is that if you have met God through the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not going to leave you. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to take the beautiful creation that he is recreating and then say, no, he's going to carry you. And so seek his face. He's walking with you. Seek his face. Remind yourself of how he's been good and kind and merciful and saved you. Seek his face in the scriptures. So in the midst of complex things in life, in the midst of just like bone-crushing difficulty, God's character remains the same. And we must trust him. You must trust him. I must trust him. He is faithful. He is just. He is sovereign and merciful. Praise be his name.